Today, we talk Twitter rants, new fine dining restaurants from ex-employees of Atelier Crenn and Cezanne, restaurants that own farms, Salt Bay's new spot in New York City, and I'm answering some of your questions well, specifically one question, let's let's limit it on this show, that you guys send me on the daily. Welcome back to the show, folks. My name's Justin Kana. This is episode 50 of The Emulsion. 50 episodes. Thank you. Thank you, folks. We're almost 20 times our audience from where we were at about 50 episodes ago. I literally used to get like five to eight people that would watch this show like in total. I remember. I remember it. Uh, one of them was one of those audience members was always my mom. So that's uh, if you're if you're wanting to make content and you're at a point where you're like, oh man, no one's watching my stuff or no one's seeing my stuff. Uh, don't stop. Just keep uploading. But I know a lot of you guys don't make content. But regardless, if you're new, this is a show where I talk all about the news stories and industry happenings that matter to me as I navigate my career as a professional chef. And just something to clarify, I know there's a lot of new people watching and listening, the YouTube that I shoot for this is supposed to be a behind the scenes of what happens when I'm recording this podcast. So the podcast is the final piece. The YouTube seeks to show you guys exactly what goes into recording it, plus gives you the opportunity to join in on the conversation. So that's why I love having you guys join me live here on the show if you are watching. But if you're just listening, also, I, I appreciate your ears. I have to give a shout out to our sponsor first. That is you guys. You folks are the sponsors. Shout out to everybody on Patreon who supports this show and me and what I create here on the interwebs. You guys are the bomb. If you're interested in giving me some of your hard-earned money in return for all of this kind of free content that I put out for you folks, I have it set up to start as little as $1 per month. I want all of my content to be free, and if you want to help me do cooler projects, bring on more people, increase my production quality, get better access to gear or to people for it to interview for this show, then you can do that. Uh, only pay if you can and don't if you can't, and that kind of model makes it sure that I can keep up my speed. Um, but I am doing a live stream and kind of ask me anything live stream tomorrow. Sorry for the delay. Travel got in the way. I was being a little bit over ambitious with scheduling that. So if you want to join in on an ask me anything over on Patreon, make sure you're supporting there and I will see you guys tomorrow. I think the voted time was uh, 9 a.m. So also quickie update for anyone on Android. The Emulsion podcast is now available on the Google Play Store. I am all uh, team iPhone. So will one of you do me a favor if you're listening and screenshot that you're listening to to the podcast and send it to me somehow, some way, on some platform, I'll repost you. I want to I wanna put it on Twitter and Instagram that the podcast is live on that platform. So one of you that has Android, would you uh, please do that for me? That would help me out a lot. Today's beverage, I have a uh, mushroom coffee. This is something we've had on the show before, uh, Four Sigmatics mushroom coffee. Made with chaga and lion's mane mushroom, uh, plus a little bit of coffee in there. My mom is insanely obsessed with their stuff. She sent me like 50 bucks worth of their stuff for Christmas, so I'm trying to decrease that quantity, my inventory of mushroom coffee. Also, I had my cup of coffee this morning, so this is like number two. So, first story of the day, it isn't technically a story in the traditional sense. No one kind of picked it up and covered it in an article or any anything like that. It's all about this lady named Helen Rosner on Twitter who went on a tear uh, a couple days ago against restaurant critics and their ethics in reviewing a restaurant. 
Uh, I personally have been having a ton of fun hanging out on Twitter lately. You guys should follow me at Justin underscore Kana. I tweet a ton. Uh, almost all of the news stories that we talk about on the show, plus other stuff that I'm enjoying on the internet. So that's a good place to follow me uh, and get in contact with me too if you want to send me a DM or anything on that. So where do I start? This story was on January 25th. She posts a screenshot that says, quote, let me be clear, I have no tolerance for sexual misconduct. And she's talking about something that she read in a review. And she goes on a tear. Uh, this, this Helen Rosner lady is, uh, she's a, new, a food correspondent for The New Yorker. So what she basically is talking about is the premise being restaurant reviewers should include points in their review or at least come forward about it and let their stance be known about restaurant people who don't run ethical businesses, whether or not there's been a sexual misconduct allegation or some sort of harassment or uh, not being fair with their employees, that should be included in their restaurant review. And they should either make it known that they talk about it and then give their opinion on the restaurant or... It's just, so you can read the Twitter thread. I'm linking it up in the show notes for you guys. She, she says, quote, Critics do not just reflect and amplify culture, they shape it. Crying, not my responsibility when it comes to character assessment in a character-driven industry is disingenuous at best and a massive, dangerous abdication of responsibility at worst. And then she also says, If you don't think this is part of your job, you are bad at your job. And then someone responded to her character assessment based on facts, absolutely, but on rumors. And she says, okay, I want to talk about this. A common argument in this side of conversation built on reasonable premise, yet entirely at odds with the realities of abuse and discrimination. So my point on it is, is, is really interesting. She, she actually says, but more important to the point, this happens so rarely. For real, any restaurant critic, please tell me if you have ever heard of a specific rumor of sexual misconduct, but ignored it when writing a review, literally ever in your career. Please, please tell me if it's ever happened. So she is trying to get a little bit more uh, information, but she's very, very firm on her opinion, uh, saying the world will be stepping the world the world we are stepping into right now is one where anyone can turn the black light on. Where soon I hope it will always be on. Will my stains be revealed? Sure they will. Am I happy about that? Nope. Do my feelings matter? Also nope. It's very easy to say I only cover the dining experience and free yourself from having to face the moral weight of your work as a critic. So interesting. Like I can't believe that this is actually a conversation that's being done. I don't. I can't think of another parallel. I mean, there are, of course, journalists who cover this kind of stuff in other industries where, like, you'll interview an al like you'll review an album or you'll re review a, a performance or any aspect or anything like that. But to include stuff that's not related to the product is really, really interesting. It happens a little bit in tech, but. At the same time, I just think it's fascinating, and it's a question that I want to pass on to you guys, right? Like, where do you stand? Let me know in the comments here on YouTube or if you're awesome and are listening to this show as a podcast on iTunes or Google Play. You should tweet at me. I would I would really love to continue that conversation there. I don't—I'm on both sides. Like, of course, if someone is running a horrible business, they deserve to have it be included in when you're reviewing their business, but when you're talking about reviewing their product, which in that case is the experience of going out to eat at that restaurant, I don't know if that should be included or not. That should be a separate article. 
I do because then it flips it again, right? Because it's like, why would you encourage people? Like, if the food is really good and the experience is amazing, but everything behind the scenes is dirty and 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 abusive and disappointing, there's zero reason for you to promote that, and the the consumer should know that that stuff is happening. And there's so many restaurants that how do you keep up with every single one if there has to be two articles, one that talks about the experience and one that talks about their moral obligations. Again, it's something that I'm super torn on, and I really, really would love your guys' uh, opinion if you have anything uh, to, to say about that. Next up, I want to talk about a trend. I even hesitate to call it a trend because it's been happening for decades, uh, and that is restaurants that have their own farms. And I say trend because only now are we seeing it become something that isn't even all that outrageous to hear about with a restaurant, right? Like if you heard tomorrow that David Chang was going to open a fine dining concept in upstate New York with its own farm, you would be like, okay, I can see that. That makes sense, right? Like I, I think about Smith and The Loyalist in Chicago, They have their own farm just outside of the city. Uh, Single Thread in California, Amass in Copenhagen, they all have some sort of connection to where they're sourcing their product. So much so that they're taking it upon themselves to grow it. So the article goes into kind of a deep dive to talk about the whys, and if you're new to the industry and you want some background as to the benefits and origins of why chefs uh, and restaurateurs do this, especially from a business standpoint, I would recommend it, but the punchline is control, profitability, and customization. So there's an example of this place called Blenheim in the West Village of New York City that says, quote, the best example of that process is their Blenheim greens, a mix of salad greens they created in search of a balance of texture, flavor, and color. Instead of growing each green separately, they mix the seeds in their ideal proportion and then harvest them all together. No tossing required. End quote. So as agrable land gets more and more scarce just due to urban expansion, and no one wants to hear or think about having a kind of refrigerated truck drive out to your farm in the middle of nowhere, uh, it's driving prices of these boutique farms up. And when you factor in the cost of not just owning the land, but hiring the people to take care of it, and then to transport and storage and preparation, does it actually make sense for restaurants to own their own farm? And I'm quoting the article again now, quote, costs in general are tricky, emphasizing that Blenheim is able to cut out some costs via vertical integration, a business term for owning multiple stages of production. But even then, the margins are still slim. It says, quote, even with all of the cost saving that we have, it's still more expensive than buying it from Cisco or any of the other distributors, end quote. That's especially the case since neither restaurant is marking up their dishes to make up for the difference lest they lose customers. Their menu prices are comparable or in many cases lower than those of the other restaurants in the neighborhood. The article continuing to say, quote, They're making a sustainable agriculture more affordable by cutting out the middleman. A restaurant's low margins means both owners are just able to keep menu prices on par with the competition. At Blenheim, entrees range from $18 for a cheeseburger to $34 for braised short ribs, with most coming in at around $25. Nearly the average price for a pasta dish at Barbudo is $24, and the Spotted Pig's hamburger is $26. On the West Coast, Bel Campo's burger costs $18 at most locations, although diners can get a fast burger for as little as $6.50 and more casual offshoots like the butcher shop and takeout spot in San Francisco's Russian Hill neighborhood. End quote. So I do like that this article profiled just a few restaurants because I'm making a conscious effort. I know I don't do it that much to begin with, but I'm going to try more to not issue blanket statements, right? Every restaurant is different. Every chef and restaurateur are different. 
And I'm happy that this article didn't end with the punchline of, yes, all fine dining restaurants should have farms, or no, it's stupid for a casual restaurant to have a farm, because there is no such thing as an individual uh, restaurant, right? You can have restaurant categories, right? You can be a taqueria that uh, specializes in tequila-based drinks. I'm sure you guys have one or two of those in your in your city, uh, or a kind of like French bistro. You can group restaurants into categories and bubbles, but I don't think there's a distinctive answer for yes or no, a restaurant should or should not have its own farm. To me, it just sounds like an incredible headache uh, to not only be at the mercy of guests, but to be at the mercy of the climate and growing conditions of, of a certain year, right? Like I worked when I was at the French Laundry at the heat of the summer, we would only use 50% of the product uh, of the menu would come from the farm across the street, right? Like you can't possibly grow enough food in that way because you'd go bankrupt, right? Like if you're using carrots in your chicken stock that cost boutique farm prices, it's not sustainable. It's kind of romantic to say, and that's another point I'd like to dive into, the kind of perception of it all. Um, does it actually make the experience of the guest better? And that goes back to the story we were just talking about. If the product is the guest experience, I'm not sure, Like, right? Like some people get giddy to hear that the restaurant grows their own stuff and that makes the experience for them, but some people care less. So you run the risk of all of that work being for nothing. And that, again, is why I think it's great that the article emphasized the importance of individual business morals and ideals and beliefs of the business owners, right? Like if you want to have your own farm, and you don't care about the business risks, but it makes you feel morally sound, then mazel tov. Like, that's what I want for you. Do you guys have anything to weigh on on this story? Do you fall into one camp or the other? Um, are you in between? Let me know. I'm personally not the guy to kind of go to the market and smell the eggplants, but I love working with high-quality stuff. But I know it's incredibly difficult to source an entire tasting menu full of high-quality organic local stuff like you could go insanely meticulous with the vegetables at the farmer's market but then if you're using processed all-purpose flour from Oklahoma it kind of defeats the story right like it's one of the reasons why I've kind of stopped marketing what I do as this kind of Pacific Northwest inspired local organic uh, stuff because it's just a big fluff right like I would rather just say that I create really fun food that's a joy to experience rather than fitting into the box that everybody else is trying to play in but that's just me. Uh, and again, that's one of the reasons that I, I, I host these shows live. I want your guys' opinion. I want you guys to know, is this something that you're interested in? Are is, is it a goal of yours? Have you worked at a place that has a farm that uh, is worth it, in your opinion? I, let me know. Next up, uh, and I have to cover it because there isn't a chef on the internet doing it quite like Salt Bay. He opened, just opened, his 150-seat uh, Nusret location in New York City. It's big, it's beautiful, there's salt everywhere, and regardless of the uh, bad reviews that it's been getting of late, he still got his place on the internet. So I actually did have the pleasure of going to the Nusret location in Dubai with my friend Hubert a few years back. Uh, that was before he was even called Salt Bay. We just wanted to go to this place that served a uh, $400 Ottoman steak. It was super tasty. It was not the best steak I've ever had, but it was just a super fun experience. Every single person in that restaurant has a mustache. Uh, they're kind of flamboyant and showman-like with everything that they do. I can see why New Yorkers don't really like it. Uh, some people saying that they left hungry, the steak was tough, um, 
I just don't think it's his market, right? But there, there is news that his Miami location is pretty bumping, which is more his crowd, I think. But there's also a sushi section of the restaurant in New York City. I'm not sure whose idea that was, but it, that seems totally ridiculous. I personally don't remember there being sushi on the Dubai locations menu, but I did look online at their menu before uh, publishing this sh- story. And it does say that they have a special sushi, quote-unquote, Nusret special sushi on the menu, which I would never recommend anyone order, <laughs> but there, uh, there is some health violation claims on, on the New York City restaurant location as well. Blah, blah, blah. I digress. Regardless, it's a quick, quickie story just showing that the internet is a powerful thing. Uh, also, no one is asking where Salt Bay gets his beef from. I'm just, just saying to, to reference that last story. So next up, a follow-up story from a story that we covered a few months back, RTB Fillmore, weird name, solid team, a restaurant concept in San Francisco led by Rodney Wages, the former uh, chef de cuisine of Atelier Crenn and Cezanne. He is rebranding and relocating his concept. He's also grown his team quite a bit. They are changing their name to Avery and moving to the ex-Mosu space in San Francisco. It is less than 2,000 square feet, and they are including 38 seats into that tiny location. That includes the private dining. And because of that, the concept is changing. So RTB was meant to be a casual, boisterous restaurant with a lot going on and people being rowdy. This is from uh, Matthew Macko, who is the partner and general manager formerly at Bennu and Saison. And he says, quote, when the opportunity came to take our current space, it didn't translate as well. It's a lot smaller and more intimate now, end quote. So they've got a redesign in process. It's taking two months, two weeks, Um short amount of time, but when they do reopen, the menu will remain the same at around $100 for multiple courses, and making it, a, a, you have the, oppor- the the chance to make it extraordinary by adding caviar and Wagyu supplements if you so choose. They are also experimenting, experimenting with a sake-only beverage pairing, as well as a champagne pairing that seems like it should just be a kind of build-your-own luxury fine dining adventure experience. I don't really have an opinion here. I just wanted to give you guys a follow-up on a story that we covered. It's not that outrageous to pivot. Uh, It's smart, even, to take advantage of other opportunities and to grow and to experiment, and this is just that. So just a reminder uh, that that is what we we can talk about and and, and share. I, I, I think that a lot of people might see this as a failure or a... You you have to listen. You have to you have to you have to pay attention to what people want, and it's definitely something that I'm uh, experiencing as well. So it's it's a story that I want to cover as something again that I'm just paying attention to as I'm going through through my my career. Last up, I wanted to cover a story from you folks. Uh, you guys send me messages all the time. I love helping you guys out. I want to continue to do this. Uh, I want to highlight your questions because a lot of uh, questions you guys ask are questions uh, other people have too. I definitely am not going to uh, kind of share anything that you guys divulge to me without asking. I always ask you guys before I cover anything uh, on the show. But uh, Mo Sugar asks me uh, on on Instagram. He says, hey, Justin, you may never see this, but on the off chance you do, I have some questions about staging at restaurants. I just finished my first ever stage. It was truly eye-opening since I had zero experience in this field. What do you do to make the most out of your stage at a new restaurant? What mindset do you have going in, and how do you prepare for service in a foreign environment slash kitchen? Any tips on making new friends in a kitchen? Thank you for your time and consideration. 
So uh, thank you for your question. Uh, this is a really good question. Uh, I know that the uh, what to bring on a stage uh, video ha is, I think, my highest viewed video on the on the channel. So there's definitely a lot of stagiaires or new cooks here that are watching, and I really really enjoy helping that at that uh, market out. I guess I, I love being able to answer this for you guys. So let's start at the top. Um, zero experience. What do you do to make the most out of your stage at a new restaurant? So this goes back to the video that I posted about doing your research on the individual restaurants, because when you get there, especially, I have to start by making sure that I'm addressing what's good, when it's good to uh, take this advice, because if it's a single day stage, you don't have a lot of time. So you really need to make sure that you squeeze it as much as you can. If it's a month long or three month long experience, then different dynamics come into play. So what I would often do is I would do a lot of one day Saturday stages when I was in culinary school. So my strategy for that and how it usually works when you're a one-day stage is they will pair you up with one cook. And that is usually a cook that has the busiest prep list or it is the cook that doesn't have a ton of experience but they need help. And so to the manager, whoever pairs you up with that person, the idea being that combination should make sure that that person is set up for service, right? You have to stop. You have to get out of the mindset that they are going to cater to you. You are there to help them with their prep list. That's step number one. Step number two is to ask as many questions as you can with as many articulated and smart questions as you can without being annoying. So an example that I used in the video is I would research the restaurant's menu on my way to the stage, whether uh, I would take the train down. Uh, and on that train ride, I would just look up on my phone, what is their menu for that day? Because on Saturday, the restaurant was usually the same menu on Friday as it was for Saturday. So I could almost count on whatever menu was posted online would be the same one that they were working with. And I would kind of start to think about what the dishes look like, right? So if it was uh, lobster with tarragon cream and blood orange, I would keep that in my head. And then if I would see a blood orange on someone's cutting board, I would be like, hey, is that for the lobster dish? I was just curious what you were going to do with that. Super simple question. They can answer it super fast if they're busy. You don't want to be asking kind of like, what do you have? Uh, do you have any advice for a culinary student? Because that's not really, uh, you want to ask very articulated questions that they can answer really fast. And then they get to know that you're interested and engaged in exactly what's happening. So that would be step number one. And then it slowly starts to grow because if they see that you're interested and that your skills are good, you need, uh, the other thing, uh, make the most out of your stagiaire experience at a new restaurant. Quality is better than speed at a stage because these people, like I said, are entrusting you with their prep. So the idea being, uh, I'm on the protein station. I have six dishes on my menu. I have all this stuff that I need to get done. And if I have an extra set of hands to do the herb picking and the onion cutting or whatever, whatever it is that helps me go faster. What doesn't help me go faster is if you try to go super, super fast and you screw up my prep, that's a really easy way to not make friends. So I would rather have a stagiaire who helps me get only three things done, but all three things are really, really good and make me look good for service. That's also an easier way to make friends than it is to try to be some hotshot that goes in and, and, and preps really, really fast because 
if you screw it up, that's another really big issue. The other thing that will help you make friends is if they give you kind of like this is a punch of a beat, right? This is just a nickel. But if this is a punch of a beat and they want you to punch out sliced beats, um, do 10 of whatever they're having you do and then go over to them with the container and say, I just wanted to double check with you that this is how you want it. And then that lets them know that they can trust you to do their prep and that will go a lot further than just kind of um, standing in the corner and prepping uh, for them. And then three hours later, showing them the container only to realize that you did it wrong. So those are the things. And again, this is just one day stage. Once you get onto like a month long or week long stages, things change because you start to meet more people. Um, second part of this question, what is my mindset going in and how do I prepare for, for, for a foreign environment? Uh, my mindset going in is to be humble, to be fast, to be uh, open-minded, like curious, ask questions. Uh, people love to see stagiaires writing things down uh, because you are there for the experience. You are there to learn. And so the more you can ask questions, the also the thing that helps me out is to, if you get paired up with someone who's a lower end line cook, right? Like they're on garmage or they're just a Comey. Try to find someone who is a little bit higher up in the hierarchy, who is either on the protein station or find a sous chef or something like that. Start to use your uh, speaking skills to befriend them, to ask them questions, uh, whether it's uh, what are you most excited about uh, with the menu right now, um, anything like like any sort of uh, questions that go into like, why, why did you guys use tarragon in this dish instead of parsley? Like those kinds of questions, uh, some people think it's annoying, so you kind of have to like tiptoe around that sometimes, but those mindset things um, help me going in because it's really easy to get nervous. The other thing that you just have to think about to yourself is that it's not the end of the world if you mess something up. If you screw something up, something goes bad, you're just a stage, you are the lowest of the low, uh, you're just there to help. That's, that's what I would uh, constantly think of in my head um, because I would put a lot of pressure on myself when I would do stages. I would, I would want to show off. I would want to be good. But you just have to think to yourself, uh, I'm just here to help. That's all, that's all it is. And then all the other good things come after that. You build these relationships. You start to uh, meet new people. And then preparing for service in a foreign environment, you just, that, just, that just is practice, right? Like the guy who plays... Uh, drums in the same studio every single day is going to get really frustrated when he has to go on tour on the road and and play at a different venue but uh by the time you get to your third or fourth show on the road you start to know you start to get what it feels like to set up in a new location every single time so that just comes from experience and that's something that i really uh use to my advantage not just by staging every weekend but i would also uh my school would change your kitchens every three weeks. So just at the time when you thought that you knew the kitchen, they would change you to a different kitchen because our classes only lasted three weeks. So that got me really good at adapting to new locations. And that's why I talk about, um, and I'm going to make a follow-up video to the, to the Total Station Domination video because there's a lot of principles there that you can use to go to a completely different location uh, and still crush it.
so I hope that that has answered your question. Um, uh, let's see. Finally, our non-industry story uh, of the week, the story I wanted to highlight, uh, and I do it every week just because I think it's important to get out of the industry sometimes. It's really easy to be head down and bogged down in this entire uh industry, whether you're in restaurants or in catering or whatever it is that you do, I think it's important to step back because not only will it give you a break from the day-to-day, get you out of that bubble, but it will also hopefully make you inspired um, and give you a little bit of of inspiration. And the story that I have to talk about is uh, Elon Musk's flamethrower story. So for everybody that doesn't know, Elon Musk is the owner of, he was ex-PayPal, he is the owner of SpaceX and Tesla now. He also owns this company called The Boring Company, where their idea is to create uh, underground tunnels to help with traffic congestion. And he started with a hat, a simple Boring Company hat, and he switched to, well, he said if the hats sell out, he will make a Boring Company flamethrower, and it is a thing. It basically looks like a kitchen torch with a uh, halo gun on the back of it. I thought it was really, really funny to see it. He's sold, I think, uh, 15,000 of them since I last checked on Twitter, uh, but he has 20,000 of them for pre-order. They're $500 a piece. They're completely legal. I actually did see a story of some uh, lawmaker in California trying to boycott them or ban them, which I think is just really, really interesting. He is a guy who's doing fantastic stuff, whether or not you think he's just some rich dude who's profiting more and doing these kind of empty projects, or you think he's actually trying to change the world. I just think it's a really interesting concept. I did think about ordering one and doing some tableside uh, torching with the Boring Company flamethrower. We'll see if that happens. I don't know if I can justify that $500 purchase at this point in time. So with that, this has been episode 50 of The Emulsion. Thank you so much for listening. Just a quick little reminder before you take off, if you want to support this or any other content I do for as little as $1 per month, that is like less than a bottle of water, I would love for you to check out my page on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash justinkana. If you can't swing the Patreon thing right now, but if you still want to support what I am do, I do, I would encourage you to go to justinkana.com and click on that newsletter button and just drop your email in there. If you have any other stories you want covered on next week's show, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag The Emulsion so I can find them. Subscribe here on YouTube and or on iTunes if you aren't already. Leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes or on the Google Play Store if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears as always, so thank you. I also have an interview show coming up next week. I'm excited to give you guys more details on that. It is a 13-year-old chef. I'm interviewing a 13-year-old chef, and it's really happening. Uh, I appreciate your ears again, so thank you, thank you so much. My name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.